0: I really had everything you could ever want at age 13. My dad's job allowed us to travel all over the world, so it seemed like we were very wealthy. I was very popular. I had straight A's when I wanted to. (laughs) Um, I had really nice things. Whatever a 13-year-old could want, I had. And that was all just empty. My family, all we did was fight. Both of my parents were depressed a lot. My father was an alcoholic, but a very well-functioning alcoholic, and my mother was a drug addict addicted to narcotics. They were very emotionally numb, and so my growing up life was very lonely. At age 13, I actually had started drinking a little bit with my friends, and a particular weekend night, I was uh, at this festival, drunk, and I was on my way to the woods to meet this boy named Kenny Nichols to make out with him. (laughs) And there was this sweet, bearded, kind-faced man standing at the little uh, house of mirrors. And he said hello to me and handed me this little booklet. And he was so nice, so I was very polite, and I took it and stuck it in my bag. And this little book was a pamphlet about God, and it was titled, This Is Your Life and stuck at my bag, didn't think much about it. Well, that same weekend, I was hysterical, fighting with my mom about something, don't remember what it was, and I locked myself in my bathroom and looked in the mirror and just really felt very hopeless and very dark. Um, I felt like there was no purpose in life, and I felt very trapped So I opened up underneath of the cabinet and pulled out a bottle of what I thought was like a cleaning fluid. And I drank the entire bottle and sat down on the floor and just slumped over and fell asleep, expecting and hoping to never wake up. I woke up to my mother hysterically screaming and banging on the bathroom door and after all the insanity and drama of that day settled down, I found myself in my bed getting ready to go to sleep that night, still feeling as upset as I was earlier. I just felt so hopeless, and I, for some reason, remembered that pamphlet that that sweet, bearded, kind-faced man handed me, and it was talking all about how Christ knows everything about you he knows every thought you have, um, every feeling you have, everything you see, everything you do, and that he still loves you no matter what. And I just couldn't even comprehend that God would love me no matter what, because I always had to perform, be the prettiest, the smartest, have the best grades. So I prayed the little prayer at the end of this booklet, asking Christ into my heart. But when I did that, it wasn't really this beautiful, flowery, holy, sacred, sovereign prayer. I was really mad. I just said, God, if you're really effing there, um, how dare you let me still be alive? So you've left me here on this earth in this effed up family. And if you're going to leave me alive, then you better effing do something with my life. I fell asleep that night and nothing major magical happened the next morning, but slowly I started feeling different inside. Gradually, I started not wanting to party. I started to not want to drink. There's some people who have these grand experiences and those are wonderful and exciting, but more times than not, it's just a little decision and you say this little prayer and now you still have to go face all your problems. (laughs) It can be a daily struggle. And there's still times I think, why am I here? But I know He wants me to point others to Him. And that's what I feel like my life is for, is to point others to Christ. I realize now that God rescued me from a life that I think was going to be a very dark life. I should be an addict, but I'm not. I should be an alcoholic, but I'm not. I should be dead but I'm not. That man who stood there at that carnival and so kindly saw this 13-year-old girl drunk, and he was kind enough to hand that stupid book to me, changed my life, saved my life. I want others to understand that even with the anxiety and the fear and depression that you can have in your life, God is always with you and he loves you no matter what. You're still gonna necessarily have those struggles, but with God, you can work through it. You can conquer it. You can get past it. And you you don't need to be ashamed. He knows everything about us. He knows every dark thought. He knows every fear and he loves us anyway. So it's wonderful to be able to share that with people and see them feel relieved and know that, okay, I'm really okay. It's gonna be okay.
1: I'm so grateful that Pam was delivered, aren't you? And that she would have the courage to share it. And also that she would know as clearly as she does know, and you heard it, I hope, that God loves us wherever we are. Did you hear that? I don't know if Pam's still here, but can we clap for her loud enough so if she's far away, she can hear it? (laughs) I know that in a room like this, that we all are in different places. I'm so glad that every one of you is here. I see old faces that I know and love, and I see new people that I've not met, but you're all here on purpose. Every one of us in our lives, every one of us, will at one time or another face trouble. And it will, uh, guaranteed for every one of us, that trouble will at times be too much. Maybe you have a memory of that behind you, All of us have some measure of that ahead of us. I'm sorry to break that bad news, but it's true. Some of us are in the midst of it right now. But the truth about God is that God is always close to those whose hearts are breaking and whose spirits are being crushed. And the reason that God is close is because God is the great deliverer, the one who rescues. In Pam's story, we hear that with such clarity that God rescued her and delivered her. In the scripture that we have been staying with in the month of November, that is the theme of the psalmist's writing. It is that God delivers. And then the writer goes on to say, if you have been delivered, talk about it. And for one reason, because God wants everyone to be delivered. And one of the most profound ways God does that is when people who have been rescued are able to talk about it. And so we are so grateful for Pam And we're so grateful for this word here because it'll open up for us God's way of delivering. Wherever you are, wherever you are, be there right now. Don't run away from what's real. And then listen to these words from Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. God's goodness is a matter of his love, which is unending. It's always there. It's like bedrock. You can count on it. It will never, ever be withdrawn. No matter what, God's love is trustworthy and his goodness is there for us in his love. The psalmist goes on to say in verse two, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And that means let the people who know God's rescue from their own experience talk about it. I know that some of you know it. And here you are and God wants to build you up today for spending this time here so that you're better at talking about it so that someone else can hear it others of you are not delivered you are here so that maybe through this text or through the story of Pam or the other stories that will be shared God will deliver you let the redeemed of the Lord say so those he redeemed from trouble that's who God is he saves people from trouble from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Four different directions named because the poet is going to show us in Psalm 107 four different kinds of trouble from which God rescues people. In the two weeks behind us, we've looked at two different kinds of trouble. This morning, we'll see our third different kind of distress. And this one I'll call soul sickness. That kind of inner malaise that results when grief and hurt And anger and disappointment for what's happened out there get turned in against your own heart so that happiness becomes a memory and sadness becomes the norm. Uh, Like what what it's like to live in a pit that's dark and your old vibrant self is up there on the brink but now it's just a memory because it's all darkness and shadows for you. Do some of you know what that's like? Have you ever seen someone transition from being a joyful, vibrant person into that kind of soul sickness? Have you ever seen that? The most most vivid memory I have of it uh, is a story that I want to share with you this morning. A guy named Tom. I met Tom at the skate park at the very beginning of his sophomore year. He went to the same high school that I had gone to. I was a bit grown up at this point. I introduced myself to Tom and told him I was uh, not only called Christian, but I also was a Christian. I had just started a youth group with some friends and I invited this kid to come along. Tom was very, a very open kid. Uh, the first week I knew him, he told me his own story. Uh, he said, when I was seven years old, my life was torn apart when my parents divorced. It ended my whole world. He was a very dramatic kid. Uh, he was also very open to faith. He came to that group with some of his friends And from the moment he first heard about Jesus, he fell in love with Jesus. If that sounds weird for you, does that sound weird? No, for Tom, it was the story of this gracious savior who had come to rescue someone who was lost that went right into his heart and it completely changed him. He became the most joyful, vibrant person you can imagine. He was one of those kids who when he's in a room, he brings the temperature of the whole place up like five or six degrees just by being there. You know what I'm saying? What? Hello? Okay. He's so happy. He's like the opposite of you. (laughs) He's so joyful that he makes people smile and he sets people free. And sophomore year and junior year, I watched this kid who's now given his life to Jesus. And so free because of it. Become the person who invites so many others and and rescues so many others as he brings them into this. It was absolutely magnificent. Something changed over the summer after his junior year. He came back at the start of senior year and he was a different kid. He didn't smile. He didn't make other people laugh. He withdrew. He became isolated and he became bitter. And you could just see the anger seething out of him. And all of the the leaders noticed it. We we started to talk about it. We prayed for him together. We wondered what to do. People reached out to him. At the end of that fall, I reached out to Tom and I said, listen, let's spend time together. Uh, At that time, my wife Michelle and I heated our house with firewood. And I had set aside a large pile of logs to chop. And I thought, you know what? Tom, I invited him. I said, why don't you come over and I'll teach you to swing an ax because as everyone knows, when a, when a young man is depressed and angry, it's good to give him a large steel weapon to swing around. <laughs> and and he, he was there and I watched him put his anger into the log and he was good at splitting the wood right away. But I knew what, the th- what I was supposed to do then is to just be quiet and be with him. And as we worked in the cold... He finally said something. He said, I'm so angry all the time. And I could tell. And so I listened. And then he started to open up. He told me that he had reconnected with some friends that were always a bad influence on him. And that he had started to drink and do drugs again. And he felt so guilty and ashamed of this because he said, I know that God doesn't want me to do this, but that's where I am. I knew why he was doing it. He didn't know how to deal with the hurt and the pain because his parents split up. He didn't know how to deal with that and and he found what many young people find which is that drugs and alcohol offer a good relief from that kind of pain. It works for a little while. But what was happening for him is every time he would sober up, he would feel guilty and ashamed, which made him need the escape that these paths gave him even more. And so he threw himself back into it and it only turned him on a wheel that got worse and worse for him. I'll never forget, there we stood in the cold and he said, Christian, I hate myself. And the worst part of it is I can't imagine how disappointed God is in me. Oh, I, I, I hate to say it. I bet there's at least one person who hears my voice right now who feels like that. And so in this moment, Tom was showing me a picture of where he was. And maybe a lot of you are not there and I'm glad for that. But where he was in this moment was exactly where the third person is in Psalm 107. And the poet describes this third sufferer in verse 17 he says this Some were sick through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities endured affliction They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death This is ancient poetry It trades in human images that say more than can be grasped on first read. In these two lines, the poet tells us not only a description of this man's condition, but also the reason for it. And so we'll set aside the reason. We'll come back to the reason for a moment. The description of this person's condition is stark. He has a malady which is internal that is described as a sickness and an affliction. Affliction in Hebrew means to be under attack, From a foe who is stronger than you are. Can you imagine that? To have an aggressor that is coming against you and to know that you don't have the power to resist. That's what it means to be afflicted. And the poet here says it's like a sickness because in this case, the affliction is inside and we know that. Because the picture is painted of someone who cannot feel joy at all and who is nearing the gates of death because they are so low emotionally. Uh, The image of loathing any kind of food, it requires some imagination. But if you would think of food in in its literal function, food keeps you alive. And a person needs food to live. And if a person loads all kinds of food, it means that there is something in their heart which is so dark and heavy that they've begun to hate life itself. This was Tom. This is where he was. The idea of drawing near to the gates of death because of this hatred of food, it goes beyond just the physical function of food but to the social function of food. Is anybody in here with me when I say there's nothing better than a good meal? Right, Isn't there? And not just when the food is done just right. I mean, the Brussels sprouts are not boiled, they're roasted. <laughs> are, you, are you with me on that? And they just have, they have sea salt on them. And there's some cheese that's turned brown. And then on the other side, there are beets that are diced up with goat cheese. And arugula in the middle. And, and there's meat, don't worry, I'm getting to there, but... There's a, a chicken uh, breast that's been breaded, and it's, oh, and across the table from you is someone who you love. And they love you. And your friends or your lovers, who knows, but there you are. Isn't that great? And can you imagine the thought of that causing you to feel revulsion? That's where this person is. This is a picture of deep and profound hopelessness and depression. That's the condition. Now, I want to get to the cause of it in a second here because the cause is clear, but before I do, we absolutely need to pause and I need to give you the most emphatic word of warning that I ever give here, okay? There is a way of thinking about depression that lives in some religious communities, in some Christian communities and some other world religions that teaches that if you're sad, it's your own fault. And that is absolutely a lie. It's a lie from the devil, Sometimes, but absolutely not always. Sometimes depression comes not because you've done something wrong, but because someone who had power over you abused their power and did something wrong to you when you were too little to handle it and you turned it inside and buried it and now you carry it around and it becomes a weapon against your own heart. You did nothing. Something was done to you. Sometimes that's why people are depressed. So before we get into the reason here, can we all agree that we will never Ever believe or promote the idea that if you're depressed, it's your fault. Can we do that? Thank you. There's a second fact. And I don't understand this. It's a a wicked mystery. Sometimes people's physiological wiring in their limbic system is such that the chemicals that regulate your mood are out of order. So just because your body's wiring is off, you're depressed. And I hate that. I have no idea why that is. It's a truth. God knows it and hates it too, I believe. And I'll talk more about that in the days ahead, I promise. I'm, gonna, I'm going to address the problem of evil and suffering in the world this Christmas. That's going to be my subject for Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. It's, the subject for Advent is the problem of evil and the promise of Christmas. Because it's about time we address that directly. But there is a depression that comes because of wires that are off, and if that's you, or if someone you love is there, you must not hear about this reason as if it's your reason, because it's not. Can we agree that we'll never stigmatize mental illness or, or that kind of depression? Can we do that? Good. We need that. But here, in this case, and this is just this person's case, and my goodness, it was Tom's case through and through, and for some of you here, it's also the reason you are suffering. It is. And there's no shame in that. It's true. In this case, the, the reason is there. This person was sick through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities. Do you see it? I owe you one. You see it there? Sin and iniquity are words that Christian communities have traditionally abused. Anytime a word like sin is used as a weapon against another person to distinguish you from them, to put them out and you in, that person is abusing the word of God. The word sin and iniquity is a part of a Hebrew word family that has words like transgression and trespass in them. And they're good words because they say things that we need to hear. Sin in Hebrew means to, to miss the way uh, or, or to go astray. That's all it means. Iniquity means to do that kind of thing, even though you know the right way to go in a sense of morally going a way that you know you should not go. And don't we all do that? I mean, let's be honest, we do. Transgress means to have a boundary and to go across it, even though we know we shouldn't. We do that all the time. And the teaching of scripture is very clear on this. It says that every time a person sins, engages in iniquity, you could take those words away if you don't like them, goes on the path that they're not meant to go on, it's always bad for them. And not because God is up in heaven waiting to see if you're naughty to punish you, but because the path away from God is itself the punishment. Do you see that? And so here is Tom He knows that the misery and grief that he experiences because of his life isn't what he was meant for. He knows that. He also knows that there's people in the church who will listen, who will be there for him and help. But for whatever reason, he doesn't go that direction. And instead, he goes the wrong way. And when he does, he suffers in guilt on top of pain and shame. And every, listen, every step he takes in iniquity... And in sin is a step further away from God, further away from the people in the church who love him and are ready to be there for him, further away from his true self and further into the pit and darkness. And if you, like Tom, are right now strategically dealing with your pain and suffering by abusing a substance, there is no need to be ashamed, but you should accept the truth that as long as you go on that path, it will only get worse. I I invite you to accept that. If that's not your problem, if you are just so good right now and you think, well, this part isn't for me. No, it is for you. Every one of us, in one way or another, will be stepping away from God and it will always make life worse for us. Let me give you an example that's very specific, right? You, you are a person who is invited by God to use your words to build up all of the people around you. And you lost your temper with your children and you made them cry. Or you said something in anger to your spouse or the person who is close to you. The person who you say you love, you treated them in a mean way. You let your tongue become a sword. Your words were weapons. And you regret it. You feel bad about it. But there it is. And what you do with it is you bury it deep down inside and you feel guilty. And now as I talk about it, it feels bad. But there it is. That is sin that that is in you that... It puts you further from where you are meant to be. Maybe you don't have somebody to yell at and to, to be mean to because you're lonely. Okay, for you, maybe your iniquity is that you mismanage your loneliness. You solve the wound of your broken heart in a way that you're ashamed of and you know it's wrong. And if there is a God, you're sure that he wouldn't like it. And so you hide that strategy from everyone. You've carried it in here, but you push it down and now it's eating you up. And it is robbing you of joy. It is pushing you further from God. Let's say neither one of those is your problem, okay? Let's say you are selfish. You always need to be right. You always need to be the center of everything. Everything comes back to you and you hate it deep down inside. Again, every one of these different paths is a path that the Bible would say is transgression. It's iniquity. Whatever it is, the truth about it is it will always make you feel worse. And here's here's also the truth. You ready? I'm telling a lot of truth this morning. Whenever you hide it, it will be like trying to deal with a weed that's growing in your garden by putting a little fresh soil over it. It'll just spread out and grow. That's guaranteed. And here as Tom was unfolding this truth to me, it dawned on me. He's been struggling in grief because he's been hiding. I was so glad that he was beginning to open it up. But what he needed to see is what the psalmist goes on to say happens when a person who's hiding their iniquity and sin is finally able to do the right thing with it. Which is to open up about it and be honest. Uh, Look at what happens for this soul sick individual in verse 19. I love this. Then they cried out. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them. From their distress. It's just that simple to cry. It means the tear of the sufferer goes all the way to the heart of the creator of the universe. There's not a tear that you shed that he doesn't know about. If you're too strong to cry, then the cries of your heart come to his ears, and he knows it. And look at what he does as he saved them from their distress. In verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. That is, he sees everyone who's languishing in misery because of their own sin and failure. And his heart toward them is that he wants to deliver and rescue them, to save them from wherever they've gotten themselves. Rather than punishing them for their wrong, he's ready with his grace to deliver them from their own problems because of their own waywardness. And he saves them from destruction and then pulls them back. And the way he does it here, the poet says, is by sending his word which heals them. Some of you know the New Testament well enough to know that that phrase, the word, the word of God which comes to heal, is a reference forward in time to a particular agent of God's healing and salvation. Do you know who it is? Help me out, would you? Jesus Christ is called the Word of God who came to heal. If this might be news for some of you this morning, and if it is news, then I hope your heart would be open to it. Listen, God saw not just you, but the whole world of men and women. Those who were unrighteous and everybody knew it, as well as those who thought they were more righteous than everyone else and were judgmental in their self righteousness, God saw them all wandering on a path away from Him and loved them so much that He sent in, him, in, his, in His Son, He sent Himself onto the road that sinners walk to pursue them, to embrace them, to love and heal them, and to go so far as to give His life to save the sinner. That's what Jesus said about Himself. I have come to seek and save the lost, to give my life as a ransom for many, to rescue those from the binds that they've gotten themselves in with my life which will pay the debt that frees them. Thank God for that. Isn't that good? You might say, it seems unfair for the people who lived when this psalm was written because it was before Jesus came. Please listen, even in the Hebrew scriptures, the word of God which heals is the word of the prophet which says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You hear that? That means that there's no end to God's grace and mercy. His mercies are new. Do some of you know this? His mercies are new every morning. That means you cannot go to bed after a night of shame and wake up in the morning and have exhausted God's mercy because it's brand new for you every single morning. God says this in the beginning of Isaiah. He says, let's have an argument. Let's reason this out. Even though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. And this is what it says in Micah at the end of that book. Because I'm the God who delights in clemency that means not punishing as I have the right to do, but rather to delight in just in mercy, to take away your sins and to cast them into the sea, to tread them underfoot, to take them as far away from you as the East is from the West, as a father, as the very best Father has compassion on his children, so too, the Lord has compassion on those who seek Him and want His deliverance and mercy. The gospel truth is that anyone who's in a pit of her own making, of his own making, only needs to seek the hand of God. And what he, what she will find, is the hand of grace reaching out to deliver all at once and with a mighty and undeniable power of sovereign deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> now, listen now. Do you know that a lot of people don't know this? It's true. A lot of people who want nothing to do with Christianity, they want nothing to do with it for good reasons. Because Christians have not painted God to look like that, but something different. And then there are Christians who want so desperately to know and follow God, and they've gone the wrong way, and because they have a different picture of God in their minds, they also stay away from him in their sin and grief, and what they need, listen now, is someone who knows that God is like this, gracious, who is willing to say so. And now here's where some of you come in, okay? And I say some of you because if you've not known that, then I want you to just receive this gift. God loves you and you can cry out to him and he'll forgive you. But if you know that, you are on the hook, okay? And you're on the hook to learn and to, to develop the skill of saying so. That is in very simple ways, being there for people who don't know that this is God, God's character yet so that they themselves can experience the deliverance which you have experienced and so I wanna, again, like last week and the week before, show you very simply how to say so. Okay, there's gonna be three steps here today for how to say so. All right, and I'm gonna bring you back to the wood pile because Tom did not know that God was like this even though he'd become a Christian and was really excited about Jesus. Even though we talked about God's grace, he didn't know this. And so what I did when he told me that he was feeling guilty and shameful is the first step in how to say so which some of you will need to take, and it's this. You need to ask a question sometimes. And here's the question that I asked Tom. I said, Tom, after he told me about what he did and how bad he felt, I said, Tom, have you told God about this? That was my question. And you know, I asked him that because I knew that if he tells God, well, I know that God promises to forgive. I know that because I've experienced it. I know that because I've seen others experience it. I know that because God's word says that. And so I asked him that question. You have one person in your life who languishes right now in sin and maybe what they need is for you to ask them the right question. Like, it might be for you that you say to them, hey, you know, I see the pattern of suffering that you keep finding yourself in and I know that you're always trying the same strategies to get, you know, joy in your life and it's not working. Have you ever tried thinking about God? Maybe that's the question you're supposed to ask. Um, Maybe you say to them, hey, do you know that Christians believe that God is sort of gracious through and through? Did you know that? Now, every one of you can ask a question like that. You can. You might feel uneasy when I suggest it because maybe you're thinking, if I ask that, that will feel to the person that I'm imagining like a spiritual intrusion and I don't want to do that. Is there anyone thinking that right now? None of you are thinking it? I can't tell. Some of you maybe. I believe that it's one of the most pervasive and untrue myths that all around us are people who don't want to have any spiritual conversations because they'll feel too intrusive. That's a lie. I I promise you. I go undercover as a pastor sometimes. You know that? (laughs) I do. Because I know if if people know and then I start talking about God, they'll write me off. But when I do that, and I talk to people who you would think want nothing to do with any conversation about God, listen to me, trust me, every single time I've done this, I've experienced this person not as someone who is offended by a spiritual intrusion, but thankful that they are rescued from spiritual loneliness, which is a far more emphatic problem today than any kind of spiritual intrusion. The truth is, the only kind of Christian voices that most people hear are the kind that are sensational enough to get on the news, and those should not be heard. When on the other hand, all around you are people who are dying for someone to ask an intelligent, sincere, authentic, spiritual question that will rescue them from their deep and painful spiritual loneliness. Like, have you told God about that? Ask that question and see what happens. If they get angry at you because you're spiritually intrusive, because I told you to ask, then please email me. I'll take you out to coffee and I'll apologize for one hour straight. (laughs) But it's not gonna happen. I'm serious. They're probably gonna say something like, no, I haven't told God. Why would I do that? Which is exactly what Tom did. He's like, no, because in his mind, I'm suffering because I offended God. Of course I haven't talked to him. Why would I do that? This is the second step of how to say so. Look, it's to give some guidance. And here I got to give this guidance. Tom, I'm not sure where that idea about God came from, but here's my guidance. Are you ready? Go, when we're done talking, go and pray and don't hide anything at all from God and tell him everything. Don't try to varnish it or make yourself look better than, than you are. Maybe you told me, part of your story and not all of your story because some parts are too ugly and frankly, I don't want to know anyway. But listen, tell God everything that you're carrying in prayer and here's how you do it. Just in ordinary conversation, pray. That's guidance. You know that there are a lot of people who right now would never think to pray because they think that it's only the person, the the, the thing that the priest does or the person in church who has a God voice does or something like that. (laughs) They just need someone Like you, and this is why I have to go undercover. If the pastor says it, they can say, well, that's just the pastor. But if it's you, now this is an ordinary friend who I know at work and who seems to be concerned with my difficult time and they're actually suggesting that maybe I can talk to God. I never thought of that. Here's the third thing that I did, which every one of you can do. You can do this. It is share some scripture. This might feel weird to you. Look, here's how it looked for Tom. After I told him, you can go pray, I said this. Tom, do you know that there's a place in the Bible, it's in the book called Psalms, where it says that people who are forgiven by God are really, really happy. And then right after that, it says people who try to hide their guilt from God are miserable. Now the poet describes it as, it's like your bones are wasting away. And then, then the writer goes on to say, all you need to do is tell God about what you've done. And when you do that and confess to him and ask for his forgiveness, he is always faithful to forgive you because there's no end to his grace. I told Tom that. That is the word of God. And if you don't know where that passage is, okay, and you're thinking, well, I don't have to do this last one because I don't know it. Get ready. I'm putting you on the hook. Here's the passage. It's Psalm 32, one through five. And you can read it. And you should. Take a picture of this or write all three of these down. If you need to hear it yourself, read that. It's so magnificently simple. Hiding your guilt makes you feel bad. Telling God about it makes you feel happy. Tell Him and He'll forgive you. That's Psalm 32. Psalm 51 that's another uh, poet, uh, poem that is written by someone who committed adultery and then killed somebody to hide it. And when he became aware of what he did, his conscience was deeply troubled and he said to God, I did this. I'm not going to hide it. I was wrong to do it. Would you forgive me? Would you wash me and cleanse me? If you'll do that, please give me joy again. And then I'll tell other people about how gracious you are. And, and, and then you'll use that to save others. That's Psalm 51. You could know that Psalm and tell it to someone. First John 1, 8, and 9. This is a very concise uh, text. It's not from a poem. It says, If we say that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. That's verse eight. That is, you're not tricking God or anyone else even, you're only yourself. And then the, the author goes on to say, but if we are faithful to confess our sins to God, he is trustworthy to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. You can do that too. What I'm showing you here is how to say so. And every one of you has in your life a Tom or maybe a, a Pam or someone that is in your family or at work or a friend, some of you are not ready to say it. Some of you are not ready to say so because you haven't experienced and owned God's deliverance of you yet. If that's you, my goodness, my heart goes out to you with only benevolence, no judgment, just this sense that I hope that God's spirit would stir in you and whatever guilt or grief you carry, that you'd be free of it. Because if you just cry out to God, he will do just what is described here. He'll altogether free you. But then for the rest of us who've been freed and who know it, My challenge to us is to do what the psalmist says at the beginning, to say so, and to do what the psalmist says uh, as he unfolds what should happen for this one who's delivered. In verse 21, this is for you who've been delivered. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. If it's you, would you let your heart thank God right now? And... Let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and tell of his deeds with songs of joy. Let's take that last line in reverse. Songs of joy. In just a few moments, we're gonna sing a joyful song together. Dave Macaron is gonna lead us. You're not gonna believe how soulful this guy is. (laughs) Let them tell of his deeds. That is say so. After I told Tom, to go do this, to go ask for forgiveness, and he did. I saw that young man go from a bitter, closed-off person to his old, joyful, and vibrant self over the course of the next few months. And it was good for him, and it was good for me, and for the leaders, and it was good for all of the other young people around him because they got to see what it looks like when a person is delivered, and that's what the world needs to see. And then he went off that next summer Uh, He didn't end up going off to community college. Uh, He came back and he became a volunteer leader in the middle school ministry at the church. That next fall, that group went away for a retreat uh, and there was a girl who went on that retreat who was one of the most sort of grave, serious, like, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Like somber middle school students you've ever seen in your life, Macy? Like carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. You've ever seen someone like this? The Sunday after the retreat, she came back and after the message was done, she hustled up to me and she grabbed me and she said, Christian, she's smiling. I was like, who are you? What happened? She said, I want to be baptized. Would you baptize me? And not right now, we don't have any water, but I said, what happened? She said on the retreat, Tom told his story. And then she said these four words. I love that guy. He told us about how God delivered him. And now I want to be baptized. What God does with our stories when we say so is he changes other people's stories. And it can be as simple as asking the question, have you told God? And giving the guidance, just pray. And saying, what the Bible says is if you ask, he'll forgive you. And then God changes one story, which changes another story. And Macy, now she's a grown up woman. This is years ago. Now she's confident and strong. And Tom, right now, he became the youth group leader for that youth group at that church. Isn't that cool? I know that on the inside, you're all like, aw. <laughs> and what God wants for us is for those of us who are stuck, he wants us to cry out so that we can be delivered. And for those of us who have been delivered to tell of it, And to sing with loud shouts of joy. And so the band is gonna come up and lead us in a song like that while I pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and for this freedom to be together and to learn in this place about your deliverance. I thank you for delivering Pam. I thank you for delivering Tom. I thank you for delivering me. I thank you for the ways that you've delivered all the people who are in this place. God, some of us know it and we're confident in that now. Would you inspire us to grow so that we can talk about it? God, others of us here are trapped. What we need is to hear your call. We need to turn to you and put down our burdens and then follow you. And so would you, as we sing this song, would you speak to our hearts so that we ourselves would be inspired to follow you away from our misery into the life that comes when we can trust you. Use this time now to draw us close to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.